Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to another episode of In the Break Room with Bill. My name is Bill Grobe with Ogletree Deacons uh, out of the Tampa office. And, you know, we're so fortunate today. I was I was running through the break room and I saw someone I almost didn't recognize because he is just never, never in the office in the break room. He's always out in the field, mostly because he's such an OSHA specialist. So whenever there's an injury or a, a critical issue may happen at uh, client site, then they call Philip Russell, and, and he's part of our OSHA practice, a leader in that practice. And I was fortunate enough to, to snag hold of him in the break room today, and I think we're just going to have a have a Shasta and sit down and talk a little bit about this new mandate that I don't know that anyone expected. We thought that you know there's an emergency temporary standard in ETS in place right now for COVID vaccinations, and we thought that that might at some point in time in the near future turn into a permanent standard. But instead, I think a lot of people got thrown a curveball with the news out of the uh, out of DC yesterday that President Biden is uh, is requesting that OSHA issue another ETS, Emergency Temporary Standard, with regard to mandatory vaccinations for companies with over 100 employees. And so, Philip, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us in the break room. And would you introduce yourself and give us some initial thoughts on what you think about this very surprising development? Yeah. Hey, Bill, and uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, good, to, good to be in the break room. I spent a lot of time, as you noted, out in the field uh, dealing with catastrophe after tragedy strikes at a workplace. And but we also do go- quite a bit of watching OSHA to see what they're doing and what's coming next. And, and you're, you're spot on correct in this. Even the closest OSHA watchers, uh, either us or, or others, didn't see this coming. Uh, what's going on here, what happened is President Biden decided to direct OSHA to do something more than what it had already done, which was to issue an ETS only for healthcare. This new one is going to apply to employers, as you said, with more than 100 employees, which means an awful lot of employers are now going to have to look at what this ETS is going to require. I think you're absolutely right. It's come as a surprise to uh, a whole lot of people. In fact, I don't know anybody that, that really anticipated this. It, maybe if you can give us a little basic understanding, what is an ETS and, and you know what happens with regard to employer input? An ETS is just an, is an emergency temporary standard, and that is a term that comes from the OSH Act itself. So back in 1970, when Congress passed the OSH Act and President Nixon signed it into law, it created the agency called OSHA, and it also created two ways in which an employer could be cited by OSHA, by that agency, and that's one for violating what's called the general duty clause, which requires employers to maintain a workplace free from recognized hazards that have a feasible means of abatement. That's one that maybe not so many folks are familiar with. The other one is a specific standard. And there are two kinds of standards. Those that are in the standards you hear about all the time in construction, for example, you'll hear a lot about fall protection. You'll hear about trenching and and PPE and other things Uh, in a general industry, similar, but a little bit different. 
but there's specific things that an employer must do or must not do. Well, that's where this ETS comes into play, but it's not something that's already on the books. But the statute, the OSH Act itself, does authorize OSHA under limited circumstances to use this ETS procedure to issue this emergency temporary standard if there is a grave danger and this, the terms of the ETS are necessary to address that grave danger. The catch here is that unlike the other ways that OSHA might issue a new rule, like a few years ago, they, updated, they added the silica standard. When they did that, they got public comment. They got input from the regulated industry. They held hearings. None of that happens with an ETS. We won't know what's in this thing until it is published in the federal register. That's the tough part for employers trying to get their arms around this right now. And now, so we know that this is a, a, a mandate or a recommendation by the administration. How is it that President Biden can can either tell or ask OSHA to do this? Does he have the authority to say, you're going to do it, therefore you have to? Or is this a request that, that we know likely will be rubber stamped and, and basically done? Yeah, it, it's going to happen because... The Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, uh, it was his nominee who was confirmed by the Senate. He heads the Department of Labor, and all he has to do is walk down the hall to that sub-agency, OSHA, and say, get it done. And that's essentially what President Biden said yesterday when he said, get it done. And so that is absolutely going to happen. There's The, the only way this were to have some chance of stopping or slowing down is going to be court challenges. But the administration absolutely intends to issue an ETS. And I don't remember if you touched on it, but usually when the administration and administrative agencies come down with a new rule or standard, companies do get the opportunity to comment on them. What's the, what's the difference with an ETS versus a regular administrative uh, directive? The way that it works is there will be none of that. There'll be no public notice in advance, no opportunities for comment. There'll be no hearings. The regulated industry gets no say as to what's going to be in the CTS. That's in the statute itself in the OSHAC. This is a way for the government to make essentially an end run around the typical procedure. But again, here's the key requirement. I think this is what is going to be the, the harbinger of what may be coming about the, the court challenge is, is there a grave danger and is what's in this ETS necessary to address that grave danger? Those are words that are from the statute. We really don't have any statutory, regulatory, or even much court guidance as to what those terms really mean. I think what you're really saying is, gosh, we just don't know how this stuff is going to be sorted out uh, on the back end when it comes out. And, and so my understanding, and again, like you said, it's all just speculation now, but but we do have at least some informed opportunities to, to speculate on what might be the content of this emergency temporary standard, certainly with the information that's been provided so far. So employers with more than 100 employees are going to be required to be either fully vaccinated or subject to weekly COVID-19 testing. And I know that I've seen a number of employers across the country almost already go to this standard without being required to do so uh, with OSHA, although it seems to me like if OSHA issues this emergency temporary standard, it certainly gives a lot of foundation and credence to the idea that employers, both with over 100 employees and under 100 employees, can mandate the vaccine and require this weekly testing module. Well, it does. And, and look, this is not the first time that OSHA is going to be dealing with 
with COVID. You know, it's not only just in the healthcare industry with the ETS issued a couple of months ago, but even outside healthcare, we've been representing clients all over the country in COVID complaint matters, whereby an employee complains uh, to OSHA that the employer was not taking measures such as requiring masks or social distancing or requiring vaccines or taking other measures, testing before allowing people to come into the workplace. Those were all handled differently, though. And, and I mentioned earlier the general duty clause. That's how the agency has dealt with those complaints so far, which is to look at COVID-19 and these complaints from the perspective of whether or not there is or was a recognized hazard for which there's a feasible means of abatement. What this ETS will do is set that aside. And for employers with over 100, now, actually, when I say set aside, let me be more accurate. For the employers with less than 100 employees, that will probably still come into play. So you're not out of the woods if you're less than 100 employees on this. If you are over 100, you will be subject to this ETS, and the government no longer needs to use the general duty clause. It will be able to use this ETS to write citations and conduct inspections. Yeah, and, and that's pretty important for employers to know. I appreciate you providing that insight and, and what could be expected. The other part of this, I think, is that on the, that's on the private side. But on the public side, I understand there was also an executive order that has already been signed or is, is about to be signed that requires federal executive branch workers to be vaccinated and then a second executive order extending the vaccination requirement to employees of federal contractors uh, obviously doing business with the federal government. What do you know about that? Well, that's it, true. And that's actually outside OSHA's area because the president did not need to involve OSHA with that decision at all. He just signed the executive order uh, and mentioned it uh, in his press conference. He, and it's on the uh, published at the White House's webpage. And that's exactly what they say. If you're a federal executive branch employee, you must be vaccinated. And interestingly, I don't think there's any requirement or any mention there of weekly testing. It is you must be vaccinated. And that also flows out to contractors. So if you're a, a private employer that is doing business with the federal government, there's a vaccination requirement now through that executive order. Those won't be handled through OSHA. Those will be handled through the government procurement, the government contracting laws and procedures that might result in and a contractor losing business with the government. So big, big risk there as well. And so that brings up a good point, right? Saying that it's only, there, there is no provision for the weekly testing, but you know, what do we do with those folks that have the either medical disability or religious reason to be exempt from the, the um, vaccination requirement? Certainly, I think one of the big options has already been discussed, and that is the, the weekly testing option. And and I think that what goes along with that is, you know, where do those reports go if you're a, a contingent worker, right? If you're a contingent uh, worker as part of a contingent workforce and you're part of the staffing agency, how, how does it work with the staffing agency sending that vaccination information outside of its own four walls and to the actual company where these folks are being staffed? I think these are all questions that are going to come into play. But let me let me talk about something in particular you know, I, I think you and I both read very recently that um, at least one company has said, OK, those folks who are requesting religious exemptions, we're going to grant those, but we're just going to simply give you leave 
without pay for an indefinite period of time, presumably with job protection on the back end. What are you hearing out in the field? It's interesting to me. I think that there is at least from these, as we're reading the tea leaves here, so to speak, or digesting this further, I think there is a tacit admission by the administration that there's got to be some flexibility, but it's not going to be very much. And I think those religious and the ADA disability healthcare exemptions or requests, what's the most immediate accommodation? Well, get a test. Uh, get a test every week. You don't want to get a shot in the arm to, you know, jab to jab to keep your job. I think it's a phrase I've, I've been seeing uh, floating around the Internet is, uh, well, then you need to get a test. And I don't know that those objections are going to be as strong when we're talking about testing as opposed to vaccinations. And so, yeah, there have been accommodations. I mean, is it really an accommodation to send somebody home without pay? Uh, And is there going to be a guarantee at the back end of that? Bill, you know this as well as anybody. We have entered in some uncharted territories throughout this whole pandemic, and this is one of them. And we're asking medical questions. Our clients are asking medical questions they otherwise never would have asked before uh, as we try to get our arms around this thing and and solve a problem that seems uh, seems to be difficult to solve. I'll tell you, Philip, uh, during this time, this whole this whole time that we've had both of the, the ebb and flow and, and roller coaster ride that we know as COVID, you know, my heart has been warmed and, and so pleasantly surprised by the ability of our organizations and clients and companies and individuals to adapt, to be so flexible and adapt to both the needs of the employees and the safety needs of, of our uh, general work environment. And so in that component, I'll tell you, it's it's really been our strength. And we're not giving actual advice on, on what to do here. We, we want to give you, all our listeners, a, a bit of flavor of what you can expect down the road and, and then what possible remedies there may be. And, and so let's talk about that just for a minute. I, you know, I brought up a second ago the idea yeah, of yeah. the contingent workforce. And we have folks that, that may need to notify an employer outside of their own four walls that some of their employees are compliant. And, and to me, to get around uh, some of the, the more stringent issues of PHI, protected health information, uh, or even HIPAA, if it, uh, if it is triggered, and we don't know whether that actually is at this point, but simply upload a report saying these employees are in compliance with whatever the vaccination policy is, or not in compliance. That way you can you can do and, and provide this information and let your client who is part of the contingent workforce know without the potential violation of these laws. But you know, one of the trigger questions on this new OSHA emergency temporary standard is going to be, gosh, you know, there's been a question on who's going to pay for what. And let's start with the vaccinations themselves. Will the emergency temporary standard that you know of require payment by the employer for the vaccinations or time off to get the vaccinations? Well, the answer is we think that's likely going to be in this new ETS. And the reason is when you look at COVID-19 ETS for healthcare that we've already had out for the last couple of months, it does require employers to pay for vaccinations and provide a brief amount of time paid leave for employees to get the vaccination and then also to recover from any potential side effects. Uh, so we already see that in, in that healthcare standard. I think that's what we're going to see in the new one as well. And that leads to, obviously, to a whole host of questions. You're right. The, the healthcare ETS did have that provision uh, that suggests that it is employer paid. Now, the, e, the EEOC 
had a frequently asked questions provision that talked about, well, the, you know, in, in the private sector for folks that are not healthcare related employers that are covered by the healthcare ETS, you know, do, do those employers have to pay either when you get testing, right? Will, will they have to pay for the testing or do you have to pay for the time off associated with the testing? And, and even the EEOC answer was, well, it depends, right? And, and so under this particular emergency temporary standard where we're seeing a mandatory, right, either vaccination or mandatory testing, do you think that changes the waters and the flavor with regard to will the employer be required to pay for the testing and the leave to get testing uh, as opposed to the, the actual payment for the vaccination, which we think is likely? Yeah, I got to say, I mean, this is, again, trying to read the tea leaves, but I think it's probably going to be there because I think that when you when, when you think about what OSHA's goal is and what the Biden administration is trying to do here, I think you're going to see a requirement that the employer you know, perhaps pay for the testing, pay for that time off for to getting the test. And there may still be um, there may be some provisions um, that the government provides for reimbursement or coverage of those. And we went through and I'm no PPP expert at all. We have those in the firm and they're not me. There were some reimbursement opportunities for some of those costs that we had to incur during the pandemic that may come out here again as well. So I think that's a possibility. But I think the burden, I actually think this, the, the regulatory burden in the ETS is going to put it on the employer to pay for the testing, pay for that time off. There may be some way to get the, some reimbursement on that. We'll see. Well, and, and I appreciate your um, your willingness to, to do a little bit of healthy speculation. Of course, we do this speculation based on obviously past history and information that, that we know to be true, at least right now, that can sort of divine the future. But I'm going to ask you to take a look in your, your romper room magic mirror a little bit further, a little bit deeper. What are you thinking are going to be maybe some of the, the court challenges to should this emergency uh, temporary standard come out and say the things that we've talked about today that we think that that's going to say, what do you think is going to happen in the courts? Well, I won't name any names, of course, but there are, I know there are business groups that are already um, sharpening the legal knives and getting ready to uh, to do what they can here to carve it up. And and it's and I, we'll see. You know, I don't I know there will be challenges. Whether they will be successful or not is really really hard to tell because. We don't yet have the ETS, but what we can do is we can look at what the administration did with the healthcare ETS. You know, we can look and see what their justification was there. And you know, back in July, the Congressional Research Service you know, essentially analyzed that ETS and uh, and said we think that it meets the legal muster. There really weren't that many court challenges. Certainly, no successful court challenges on that one. Will there be here? And I guess the answer to that is possibly, and there really would be two levels. There's a statutory uh, challenge in which a business group or employers may say there's not a sufficient grave danger here, dear government, dear OSHA, in order to impose this requirement uh, upon employers. And that grave danger is not something we have a great understanding for what that means. Although, Bill, I know you're a movie guy, so this probably reminds you, because it reminded me of that exchange between Lieutenant Caffey and Colonel Jessup. I uh, remember the discussion and a few good men about whether or not there was uh, grave danger. Is there any other kind? Yeah, uh, I, I, I remember that. I expect that's going to be the conversation we're going to see in court, because I think there's going to be a discussion about what is grave danger. 
Jessup says, is there any other kind? That's what OSHA will say. There is no other kind. This is grave danger. COVID-19 is grave danger. Check the box. I think employers may argue that, wait a minute, even though we understand there may be some deference the courts should give OSHA in at least one occasion, and, and ETSs have not been used a lot, Bill, in history. But you got to go back. If you look at 1983, OSHA did try to implement an emergency temporary standard on asbestos. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in 1984 actually struck that down. Even though the court acknowledged there was some deference to OSHA, it still felt that OSHA did not prove its case in terms of a grave danger. So therein lies the battle, a grave danger. Is there any other kind? We shall see. So that's going to be one challenge. Well, I'll tell you, Philip, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that, our, hoping that our listeners can handle the truth when it comes to finding out what's really going to happen in, in this. And, and one question I thought of while you were talking about this. So who is it that gets to determine what is grave danger? Is it OSHA that makes the determination and then the court says, prove it up to me? Or how does that work? That, that's exactly it. They're going to need to put into the ETS, they're going to need to put in there some finding of the grave danger in order to anticipate these core challenges. And I expect that's what they'll do. And much like that analysis I referenced earlier, the government, OSHA, will go through and say, these are the reasons why we think COVID-19 and possibly the Delta variant is a grave danger, such that it is necessary, because that's the second statutory requirement, that these particular measures in this ETS are necessary to address that specific grave danger. OSHA has to prove its case. And it will put them in the ETS. It will be issued. Here's the challenge, though, Bill. It is effective. This ETS is effective the moment it's published in the Federal Register. So even if a business group or someone challenges, it goes to court that day or the next day, it's going to be, have to be up to that court to decide whether to stay that, the enforcement of that ETS or not. And that's also not guaranteed. So it's possible to have pending court challenges and employers still have to follow the ETS or risk getting cited by OSHA. This is incredibly great information, and, and I don't want to put uh, put our listeners on overload of speculation. I think that the speculation is, is based in large part on a very, very, very strong foundation of what we can expect based on what's happened historically and what we're hearing out of Washington. But I, I really appreciate you providing your insight. I know our listeners are going to appreciate the comments that you've made with regard to both the ETS questions that are going to be springing up from the uh, from the implementation of this ETS. And then what are we going to do on, on the back end? And, and Philip, I know that you are no stranger to social media. I believe that you uh, you are almost every day I see you on LinkedIn. And then I know that you have a great podcast called The Dirty Steel-Toed Boots. When can we expect to see you again on LinkedIn? And when can we expect another podcast from you, my friend? Well, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. And you're right. And, and those two, and even what I'm doing with you today, really flow from my personal mission and my practice. The mission is to make sure employers know their rights. I have found over the years that it's an area that I just it causes me some angst as a, as a guy that comes from family businesses to see a business not know their rights. One of the big things about OSHA is that they don't actually have to tell an employer the employer's rights. There's no Miranda-style warning that OSHA has to give when they show up to do an inspection. And so employers really need to know what they can do and what they can't do. They more importantly need to know what OSHA can do and OSHA cannot do. 
So for me, I just get really passionate about it. And, and I started posting on LinkedIn every single day back on February 4th, something about OSHA, whether it's about how to conduct employee interviews, how to do the walk around, how to engage with OSHA during the process, how to, to analyze a citation, those sorts of things. And of course, COVID-19 and the updates there. And the podcast simply just came from the dirty steel toe boots, because as you mentioned, I get to wear in my practice, I wear boots and jeans more than I wear coats and ties and, uh, and they get dirty. And so the uh, dirty steel toe boots really flowed from that. And, and it's really just been exciting and an honor to, to lead in that area, I think, for employers and for our firm to try and make sure that folks really know what their rights are so that they can assert them properly. And it doesn't mean we fight OSHA, but what it means is we hold them accountable. And I think everybody would agree that's a good thing for us to be doing. Well, Philip, thank you again for, for stopping by and visiting with us in the break room. Obviously, you, you must rarely get any sleep because you are always out in the field and, and getting things done. Thank you to our listeners for stopping by. And, and hopefully you found some excellent information in this podcast. And uh, Philip, any parting words? And, and then we'll sign off. No, I love the break room. Fantastic job, Bill. Keep it going. Same thing. We got to make sure that our employers, whether it's in OSHA or employment law and the other areas you touch upon, I know you had Karen on last week or last time about non-competes. I mean, keep it up. This is a good way to get our folks uh, educated on some things. We don't, as you say, give advice for a particular circumstance, but knowledge and information allows them to help make better decisions. So great job. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Philip, and thanks to, to you, your team, and, and all of our wonderful partners and, and colleagues at Ogletree Deacons who make this happen every day and make sure that employers are safe and protected and defended. So we'll see you again on another episode of In the Break Room. Until then, have a great week. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.